There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Billy. Hey, Twisters, what up? So, I went out and got me a fancy professional podcast intro. Oh my god, I was like a kid on Christmas morning when I downloaded the audio file. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm running with the big dogs now. I heard through the podcasting grapevine that sometimes listeners are considerably vocal when it comes to their opinions on intros or outros using your own voice versus using someone else's. I hope you all enjoy the new intro. But I have to say, and I realize this is going to sound kind of shitty, that even if you don't like it, I'm okay with it because I freaking love it. By now, you should have realized this is not your typical true crime podcast, and I am not true crime all the time, as today's episode will surely reveal. I'm more like that bad cousin of true crime podcasts who shows up at the family barbecue with crazy stories, cusses in front of the kids, sometimes drinks too much but you still want her around anyway. Welcome back to Twisted Philly. Shall we begin with some Twisted Philly what-ups? My first what-up goes out to Dusty, the amazing voice and digital artist who created my intro. I found Dusty on Fiverr. Um, No, Fiverr is not sponsoring me, but I think their site is such a terrific resource for hiring audio, video, graphic talent. It's super easy, and every time I've used them, I've had great success, especially with Dusty. So what up, Dusty? My next what up goes out to the Epic Film Guys, Justin and Nick of Epic Film Guys podcast. I could probably do an entire podcast about how fucking cool I think these guys are and how much I love their show. The relationship between the two of them feels like you're hanging out with some totally cool dudes in their man cave or something, just shooting the shit about movies. And more than that, they're smart, they're funny, they talk in depth about movies. The format of the show is brilliant, and yeah, I am more than a little jealous because they are way better at editing than I am. The reason they're getting a what up this week is because they listened to my podcast. And when I saw their incredibly kind and complimentary tweet, I really lost my proverbial shit. Like, I even called a friend of mine and instantly reverted to the child of the 80s that I am when we all thought we were Valley Girls, and I was like, oh my god, the Epic Film guys listened to my podcast and they liked it. Like, do you know what this means? Like, I can't even speak. And then she was all like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but if you're happy, then I'm happy. So this week, I want to give a great big Rocky running up the museum steps what up to the Epic Film guys who have been such a great source of support. Do them a solid, Twisters. Listen to their show if you like movies because it's fantastic. Subscribe and leave them a review. If you follow me on Twitter, you can probably guess the topic of this week's episode. We are going to delve into the world of the spirit. Today, I'm going to tell you about Haunted Hill. Okay, it's really Chestnut Hill. And it's home to reportedly one of the most haunted houses, not only in Pennsylvania, but in the entire United States. I'm going to share with you the story of what is now a private residence, but years ago, you could actually tour this specter-infested mansion, and it's called the Balleroy Mansion. It's been a number of years since I stood outside to take pictures, so I thought in honor of this recording, I would head to the hill. So I spent some time this past Sunday walking around Clover Hill Market, which is a fabulous, 
outdoor artisan vendor event like twice a year in Chestnut Hill and Bryn Mawr, and I think somewhere in Jersey too. Um, they're on Facebook and Twitter. Again, it's called Clover Hill Market, and I totally recommend you check them out if you like antiques and handmade jewelry and pottery. It's really cool. So I went to Chestnut Hill. I spent some time walking the market. I didn't buy too much. I was a good girl. And then I ventured over to Balleroy Mansion. I'm not going to share the address. It's online, and if you're really interested, you can find it yourself. But I don't want to be the person that sends other people to go stand outside of someone's house when they're trying to eat their roast chicken dinner. Although that's exactly what I did this weekend. And I even did a recording while standing in the street. I am checking out the Balleroy Mansion. I'm standing outside like a creeper because in 2012, the house was purchased and it is no longer available for tours. So I'm actually going to, uh, I don't know, maybe walk up and down the street a little bit, see what I can see, see what pictures I can take. Definitely won't walk up the driveway because that would be really rude and stalkerish. Let's hope that I don't get arrested because I'm going to be reaching out to you guys for some bail money. Okay, so while I was at my car in front of the house, and this is a completely quiet, picturesque residential neighborhood, I start to hear sirens, and it totally freaks me out. So I jump back in the car thinking somebody called the cops because I'm lurking outside of this mansion. Um, It wasn't police. I was fine. I didn't get arrested. But before we get into the history and the hauntings of the Balleroy, let me set the stage for you. This is a beautiful home, and... Like the properties that surround it, it sits very far back from the street. There are beautiful, lush old trees everywhere and so much shade. Most of the houses in the immediate area are enormous stone mansions, but the Balleroy has a little less stone, which gives it an unexpected juxtaposition of different architectural styles. It looks a little bit colonial. It looks a little bit Victorian. It's just absolutely beautiful. And I go nuts when I'm in Chestnut Hill, not necessarily because of big houses. I mean, there are tons of big houses, like mansions, and they're amazing. But just so many of the homes, because they're so old and there is so much history and so much character. When I look at them, I feel like Andy in Pretty in Pink. And can I say that I worship at the altar of Molly Ringwald and have since I first saw her in The Facts of Life and then The Tempest and then, of course, all the John Hughes films. But I remember a scene from Pretty in Pink when Andy is in her car with Ducky and they're driving through the neighborhood where all the Richies live. And she's talking about wondering if the people who live there realize what they have and how beautiful it is. And I feel like that when I look at these houses. Like, I wonder if the owners research the properties that they own and research the history of Chestnut Hill and the ties there to the Revolutionary War, because that's what I would do. And I guess in my brain, I think everybody should do what I would do. But I think that's what the owners of the Balleroy have done, although I haven't talked to them. I did consider reaching out to them, but it's been a number of years since the home offered tours and since it's been a private residence for at least four years now. Like, I didn't want to be that annoying person and creep out the owners. Balleroy was built in 1911, supposedly by a man who then killed his wife inside the home. Um, And then it was purchased by the Easby family in 1926. Now, Chestnut Hill is a town that is sometimes referred to as old money. And this family had some seriously old ass money. They could trace their roots to a number of different people and places. The family had ties to Easby Abbey, which is also known as St. Agatha's Abbey in Yorkshire, England. And like this abbey was built in the 12th century. 
so their roots go back really, really far. The family came to America in 1683, and they were on board the same ship as William Penn. Yeah, the guy that named our state. They claim a number of their descendants were signers of the Declaration of Independence, and that's not the only connection they have to early American history. The Easby family is actually the Meade Easby family. Mrs. Harriet Easby was the granddaughter of General George Meade, who won the Battle of Gettysburg during the Civil War. So basically, this family was connected. Um, Not like the way the mob is connected, but connected as in they knew the right people, they had good breeding, and they bought a big fancy house in Chestnut Hill. It's not a bad life if you can get it, until you realize the big fancy house you just bought is haunted as shit. The hauntings began shortly after the Easby family moved in. Mr. and Mrs. Easby had two young sons, George Meade Easby Jr., who was about eight when the family bought the mansion in Chestnut Hill, and May Stevenson Easby, who was George's younger brother, and he was called Stephen. The first reported paranormal phenomenon occurred at a fountain on the property in the front yard. George and his little brother were playing around the fountain. They were laughing at their reflections. And as the story goes, George's little face was reflected back to him in the water. But Stephen's reflection was a skull. That's like some shit out of The Conjuring or Insidious. And so that makes me question whether or not that story is really true, right? Because these are little kids. So maybe he didn't see a skull reflected back at him. Maybe it was a trick of the sunlight reflecting on the water. or ripples in the water from the splashing fountain that transformed Stephen's reflection. But the kids told their parents the reflection was a skull, and less than five years later, Stephen died of an undetermined illness in 1931 at the age of 11. Still, it's not necessarily a death by a haunting. I mean, it's 1931, medicine isn't what it was today, and little children were constantly at risk of some unknown illness or another. But after he died, Stephen's ghost was frequently seen around the property for close to 80 years. After his parents' death in the 60s, George Meade Easby Jr. took over running the mansion in 1969. And that's when he named it Balleroy, after a chateau in the Loire Valley in France. George was a real character. He had a terrific history of his own. He was a bit of a local celebrity in Philadelphia. He spent his life as a bachelor, which, considering how many ghosts inhabited Balleroy, when would he have had time to date? A little background on George Meadeesby Jr. He studied at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, and then he was drafted during World War II. After the war, he had so many different professions. He was really a Renaissance man. He worked as a cartoonist, as an actor, as a movie producer. And yeah, it was some pretty low-budget stuff. But hey, anything with a speaking part can get you a credit on IMDb. George also worked for the State Department for over 25 years, and he was a radio host on AM radio right here in Philadelphia. He was also a philanthropist. I love looking at old pictures of this guy because he has such a mischievous sparkle in his eye. He looks like the kind of gentleman that would sit with you for hours and tell amazing stories about his adventures, his classic car collection, and his unbelievable collection of antiques, which had over 100,000 pieces in the collection. Now, this collection was unbelievable. Some of the items were inherited from family, and we're talking about items that were in his family for centuries. Not decades, centuries. Like, okay, a set of silver that was used at the dinner during the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Like, that is fucking insane. And a clock that was made for Marie Antoinette. 
Some of these items he acquired throughout his life, but the collection was thought to be one of the most important antique collections in the United States. And sometimes he even loaned items out to the White House. Again, like seriously connected, seriously old money. But George was also this friendly old neighborhood guy inviting little school children into his home to see this unbelievable collection that was set up like a museum. He was fascinating. And a few of the antiques in his collection are tied to the hauntings. So let's start talking about the ghosts or it'll be an hour from now and this nerd will still be talking about history. Throughout most of his childhood, George Easby reported typical paranormal activity. So things like cabinet doors opening and closing, bedroom doors opening and closing unexpectedly. There were knocking and banging noises coming from one of the 30 rooms in the mansion, rooms that were unoccupied at the time. And as the years progressed, George, as well as visitors to Bowery Mansion, including workmen and contractors, his friends, even reporters, they all have different stories about seeing apparitions. Probably the most frequent story is about his brother, Stephen, and the sightings of Stephen were numerous. There are so many stories of people visiting the house over the last 50 years who saw Stephen's ghost. And even the new owners who purchased the house in 2012 had a few glimpses of a little blonde boy walking past an open doorway or catching a glimpse of him in a mirror. And then they turn around, there's nobody there. There were contractors working on Balleroy Mansion in the 90s, and they reported seeing the same little blonde boy looking at them from an upstairs window. The guy's name was David Belts, and he had a friend working with him in the yard when he noticed a little boy looking down on them, leaning in a windowsill. So he pointed it out to the friend who was working with him, and then the kid's face vanished. That was it. The friend split. David continued doing work on the house, but his friend never came back. There's also a story about a picture of Stephen flying off the wall one night when George was entertaining, and it flew 15 feet across the room. The nail was still in the wall. The string on the back of the picture was still intact. There's no way that that would happen on its own. Like, I've had pictures fall off the wall, usually because I don't use strong enough nails and I don't use molly bolts. But when they fall, they pretty much land in the same spot, not 15 feet across a room. There are a number of pictures that were taken inside the mansion that depict ectoplasm. Now, I am such a friggin' dork that when I heard the word ectoplasm, I thought of the green shit in Ghostbusters, like the snot that would get left behind in the original movies by those nasty little green ghosts. Yeah, I'm a dumbass. Um, ectoplasm in the world of intelligent people is a mist that sometimes appears in the presence of ghosts. So there are a number of photographs um, on record at the Chestnut Hill Historical Society where ectoplasm can be seen not only in empty rooms, but around people. You know, whether these photographs are of an actual haunting, who the hell knows? I can't say for sure. I've checked them out through the Chestnut Hill Historical Society there's one photograph that I thought was pretty compelling, like if you're a freak like me who does believe in ghosts. And it was taken outside on the front lawn in front of the fountain where Stephen years ago claimed that his reflection turned into a skull. But then there's some other pictures from other sources that like kind of look like bullshit. So George Easby also believed that other family members haunted Balleroy Mansion, including the ghost of his mother, Henrietta Mead Easby, the ghost of his uncle, and apparently, according to George, his uncle's ghost helped him find some papers that were in a hiding spot in a piece of furniture, and the papers led to him getting an unexpected inheritance. Like, 
he didn't have enough to begin with. Why the hell can't I get haunted by someone like that? Like, where is the ghost helping me with a financial windfall? There were numerous seances held at the property, and these were like real seances where people sit around tables with candles and shit. Um, and it probably sounds pretty amusing that I said they're real seances because I'm sure there's tons of people that think seances are bullshit. At one point, there was a medium named Judith Richardson Hames, and she lived in Philadelphia. She read people's auras, she held seances, and she made a living from her psychic abilities. Okay, so I'm going to digress for a minute because there's a crazy story about this woman. So Judith Hames actually sued Temple University Hospital saying that an allergic reaction to iodine from a CAT scan caused her to lose her psychic abilities. Okay, technically it wasn't the iodine from the CAT scan that eradicated her psychic powers. It was these extreme recurring headaches as a result of the allergic reaction that made it impossible to use her psychic powers. And crazy enough, a Philadelphia jury awarded her $600,000 and then the verdict was overturned and she didn't get anything. That sounds like some twisted bullshit to me. But in any case, Judith Hames held a seance at Bowery Mansion and the moment she walked in the door, she had some exclamation about, oh my goodness, there's so many spirits here. She claimed the house was also haunted by some pretty historical figures, including the English poet John Milton and a field marshal from Napoleon's army. She and George Easby believed that these very famous ghosts haunted Balleroy because they wanted to be near their most treasured possessions. There's a lot of stories about another famous ghost that people claim to have seen lurking around the dining room, and that's Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if I believe this one. Um, I was emailing with my friend Ben this week. What up, Ben? Ben is a pretty cool cat, and he knew I was pulling together a story about Balleroy and some other haunted locales in Chestnut Hill, and he mentioned Jefferson's ghost. I can't think of anything to tie the ghost of Thomas Jefferson to this home unless maybe he owned that set of silver that was used during the signing of the Declaration of Independence, um, and then eventually, you know, the silver landed at Balleroy. Um, and Ben very rightly said, when you think about Jefferson's home, Monticello, that's probably a more likely locale for his ghost. Again, my issue here isn't disbelieving the hauntings. It's disbelieving whether or not a particular ghost is included in the hauntings. So speaking of possessions and seances, a local journalist named Mr. Len Lear actually had the opportunity to meet George Mead Easby and visit Bowery Mansion on a very special occasion. George Easby and another resident of Chestnut Hill, who also had an affinity for the paranormal, arranged a seance in 1998 with a fairly prominent medium from New York. Now, Len and his wife were invited to attend the event, and there were about eight or nine other people there. Mr. Lear still works for the Chestnut Hill local, and he was kind enough to speak with me and share what he remembered from that visit. I owe a huge Twisted Philly shout out and what up to Mr. Lear. He was so responsive to my request for a chat. He was so easy to talk with, and he is a great storyteller, as you will hear right now for yourself. I'm talking with Mr. Len Lear, who is a journalist for the Chestnut Hill Local. Um, first, I want to say thank you again, because you called me back within about five minutes of me sending you an email, which is just so wonderful. Thank you. Um, Mr. Yeah. Lear, how long have you been working for the Chestnut Hill Local? Full time for 14 years, and before that, I worked here part-time for about seven years. And you've been a resident of the Philadelphia area for most of your life? Yes, I have. I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and I have lived here my whole life in the city. 
I reached out to you because through my research, I found a story that you wrote where you actually had the opportunity to meet Mr. Easby and visit Balleroy Mansion. Can you tell me how that experience um, came about? Oh, at the time, there was someone working here at the paper who was friendly with Mr. Easby, and they had something in common, which was they both, they both believed in spirits, I guess you'd say, in, and they both had attended seances. And this person who worked here told me that George had contacted her and told her they were going to have a seance. They were bringing down some expert from New York City, and the reason for the seance was George claimed that there were ghosts in his house, and he wanted to communicate with them. And this house, of course, is historic, and George, I think it was, it was either his grandfather or great-grandfather, was General George B., who was a Union general at the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes, I believe that was his great-grandfather. Yes. General Meade lived in Philadelphia, and George had a lot of his memorabilia from the Civil War. His actual sword, for example, it was quite fascinating. His house was a virtual museum. He had one item he claimed came from Napoleon, and so he had these items in cases in one big living room, and it looked just like a museum with these fabulous items inside and little notes explaining what they were. So that in itself was fascinating to me. It must have been unbelievable to see all of those antiques and pieces of history. Did you happen to ask him why he created this museum in his home? Uh, well, I asked him, why do you have these items displayed like this? Do, in addition to your friends and, and neighbors, does anyone else ever come to see these items? And he said that he would invite school classes and history classes to come in to his house and to look at all these items and take notes and so forth. So it was kind of a public service, I guess you'd say. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I remember when the house offered tours, I actually never took advantage of that because um, one of the items you mentioned of Napoleon's, I think that was the chair. There, there were rumors that that chair was actually a trigger for some tragedies in the house. Do you, have you ever heard anything about that? I don't recall anything about that. Okay. No. I spoke to him twice. That seance, alleged, this is a seance that was supposed to take place, was one occasion, and there was another time when I went with my wife, who my wife was very interested in this kind of thing also, and I thought I might get an article out of it, <laughs> uh, so that was the reason I went, and just because I thought it was fascinating. Not that I necessarily believe in this stuff, but you never know. I like to keep an open mind. Right. Any, anything is possible. Now, I read in the piece that you didn't actually see any activity or anything that you would consider haunting when you were visiting his home. Is that correct? That is correct. There, there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Sunday Magazine, which no longer exists, where a, a freelance writer, and he was also a photographer, did come to the house, swore that he saw ghosts. <laughs> and he even took pictures, which he claimed showed the, the ghost uh, appearance. I could not see it, as I recall. I did look at the pictures that were in the Inquirer, 
and I thought it was a little hazy, it was a little weird. Uh, I wasn't quite convinced myself, but who am I? So some people were convinced, and it certainly made an interesting story. I've seen that picture too, and I agree with you. It, it looks like there's just a bit of a haze over the picture. Could be some bad film, could be you know some, right. bad, some bad processing. Um, right, could be a double exposure. Right, that photograph just looks like something happened during the developing stages. You mentioned that one of the reasons you were visiting Balleroy Mansion and George Easby was for a seance. Would you share any experiences you might have had during that visit? I think there were about 10 people there. I, I can't remember the exact number. But of course we were waiting patiently for this person from New York who, who had conducted seances in the past and apparently had some special powers, at least according to George. And we kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and this woman never showed up. And eventually called, and this is before cell phones were common. She eventually called, probably from a payphone, and said, I think she had either car trouble, or she came down sick, or, or something like that, which prevented her from coming to Philadelphia. And so that was kind of disappointing. I was really looking forward to that. It did not happen. And George said, as I recall, that he would try to put it together again when this woman solved her problem, whether it was a car or her being sick. Uh, at some point in the future, she would be able to come back to Philly, and then he would have it schedule this again. And he would let people know about this. And I thought, okay, I'll go back later. But for some reason, and I don't recall the reason, it never did come to pass. I'm not sure how long after that George passed away, so I don't know if his health was the factor in not rescheduling this. It might have been old at that time, but he was in his 80s, and he really didn't look all that great health-wise. So that might have been the reason it was not rescheduled. I think you're right on that account. From most of the research I've done, you know, he passed in 2005, but the last five or six years of his life, he was struggling with some with some health conditions. And right. he sounds like the kind of man that if he was able to pull it off, he would have absolutely gotten everyone together again to hold that seance. Yeah, I'm sure he would have. I'm pretty sure that he said he had seances in his house in the past. One of the things that I found really fascinating, and I think it's something that you absolutely touched on in, in your piece as well, is just the the charismatic, interesting person that was George Gordon Mead Easby. Would you share with me your impressions of him when you met him? Yes, well, no question. He was a very interesting character. He had lots of stories uh, from his experiences in, uh, with the State Department, having been all over the world, meeting important people in various countries, and also about his family history. And he was a, a radio personality in Philadelphia for a time, wasn't he? I, I think that's true. I don't remember specifics, but I believe that's, I believe he did mention that. You know, thinking about Chestnut Hill and, and just the number of amazing, beautiful properties that are in the community and, and the preservation that goes on through the Historical Society, um, has the stories about the Bowery Mansion, do you think that's done positive things for the community? Do you think it's been a bit of a pariah with all the ghost stories? What are your thoughts about that? It's hard to answer. I was told this is hearsay, so it has no validity, really. But I was told by someone in, the, in that immediate community that a couple of the neighbors were not too 
I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and, and share your personal thoughts about this experience. Um, it just adds so much, you know, being able to talk to somebody who has met him and been in the home and, and seen the unbelievable collection of, of antiques and, uh, you know, and, and pieces of history that he had from our country and other countries right here um, right. in our very own Chestnut Hill. I don't know whatever happened to all those objects, by the way, because I know there's a, another family living in the house now, just a regular family, from what I have been told. And all those items are gone. I don't know. Where. Maybe some, maybe one of his relatives has all those items. There was um, there was a companion of his that after he died managed the estate and the dissolution oh. of his collection. So a number of the pieces were sold at auction, and oh. and many others were donated to museums and to the State Department. It sounds like some of them were you know were certainly cared for through through donation. Um, but then others were, were auctioned off. Okay. I do remember that man. I met him that, that night. His companion is much younger than George. Yes. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I was able to share something with you that you didn't know. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, Dina, Dina, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Lear. Take care. Okay, bye. Okay, so how bummed would you be if you got invited to a seance at what is considered one of the most haunted homes in America, certainly the most haunted house in Pennsylvania, and the medium doesn't fucking show up. I loved listening to Mr. Lear talk about the amazing collection of antiques, and I made a point to bring up one item in particular, but Mr. Lear hadn't heard any of the legends about it. That item is the primary reason I never tried to visit Balleroy Mansion when it was open for tours. There's a room in the house called the Blue Room. Now, it was a typical old-fashioned Victorian drawing room full of antiques, but one item in particular had a terrifying, nefarious reputation, and it was called the death chair. Now, this was a blue winged back chair, and it is believed that it belonged to Napoleon. This chair is over 200 years old, and George Easby frequently told people not to sit in the chair because he was convinced that sitting in that chair could be deadly. He attributed the chair to four deaths, although the Chestnut Hill Historical Society can only confirm three deaths. Now, that doesn't mean that the Historical Society actually believes people died because they sat in the chair, but they can confirm there are stories about the chair and three people who were either in Mr. Easby's employee or in the house and sat in the chair and then subsequently passed away. One person in particular was a gentleman named Paul Kimmins, and he was a curator at the Bowery Mansion, and he died as a result of the chair, not only after sitting in it, but some people say he was driven to madness and an untimely death at the hands of a spirit named Amanda. Paul Kimmins claimed that Amanda's spirit stalked him after he sat in the chair, driving him insane, and he died a month later. Amanda was a pretty active spirit at Balleroy, and her ectoplasm, again, mist, not snot, could often be seen between the reception room and the blue room, possibly in an attempt to draw people in to sit in the death chair. She's not a relative of the family, and nobody knows who she is or why she haunted the Bowery Mansion. George Easby has said that she was kind of a wicked pain in the ass when it came to hauntings. She was the ghost that was constantly slamming doors, slamming cabinets. But the medium that was there in the 90s, she had a very different perspective about Amanda. She said that Amanda wasn't actually evil or wicked, she felt that Amanda kept appearing to Paul Kimmins, the curator, because she was helping facilitate 
the passing into the next life because it was simply his time. Who knows? It's also reported that a maid died after sitting in the blue wingback chair and one of George Easby's cousins, again, shortly after sitting in the chair. So after that, Easby threw a duvet over the chair and told everyone to stay the hell out of that death chair. Besides family ghosts and Amanda, there were also reports of a monk that lurked around the second floor. It was said that he was friendly, he didn't really cause too much trouble, and there was also the ghost of an old woman in a black dress with a cane who could be seen walking along the second floor hallway, and she would bang her cane on the floor. Probably that's what the knocking and banging noises were that people would hear when they were visiting the house. Other than that creepy-ass death chair, none of the spirits really bothered George Easby. In fact, he invited the ghosts to stay as long as they liked, even indefinitely if that was what they wanted. And some say that after his death, he said he might stick around and haunt Balleroy himself. Balleroy was featured on a number of programs in the 90s. It was in the premiere episode of an old program HGTV had called Haunted Houses, and it premiered on October 29th in 1994 or 1995. And then it was also in an episode of Sightings during this third season in April of 95. Yeah, good luck trying to find the HGTV program and don't even try watching sightings. I tried. I was in and out of five or six different free websites that were so free they wanted my credit card. Yeah, free my ass. And the idea of paying wasn't an issue. I would have happily paid to watch that episode. But these were the kind of websites that you know you cannot trust. One gem that I did find was actually in People Magazine Archives. And it was an article featuring George Easby and Balleroy Mansion. It is a fun little read. And there is an awesome photograph of George holding a picture of his mother. There is a huge devilish grin on his face while he is surrounded by ectoplasm. The guy looks like he is having a ball. And there's a link to that article on my website if you'd like to read it. You can check it out at twistedphilly.com. George Easby died in 2005. And as you heard in my conversation with Mr. Lear, um, a companion of his managed his estate. Most of the antiques that he had in his collection were either sold or donated to museums or to the State Department. And then the house sort of sat for a number of years until it was purchased to be used as a private residence again in 2012. Now, there are a few other well-known haunted locations in Chestnut Hill and lots of haunted history. And I'll tell those stories in future episodes. There's so much to share about Balleroy Mansion and Mr. George Mead Easby that he and his home deserved an episode of their own. If you have a chance to visit Philly, I really encourage you to head to Chestnut Hill. Take a stroll along Germantown Avenue. It's only eight miles outside of the city, although Chestnut Hill has a Philly zip code. There's great shopping and charming little restaurants, and the original cobblestone streets are just, like, too much. And there's a shitload of ghosts, too. Before I go, I'd like to remind you that if you like what you hear, please leave me a review on iTunes. Yes, it's a shameless plug. If you don't know how to leave an iTunes review, I have a step guide on my Twitter page. Yeah, I made a step guide. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible. All right, it's that time. You know what I say. Ciao for now, twisters.